Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 272 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Masonic revelations of the Frenchman Leo Taxil. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Since their modern beginning in the early 1700s, the Freemasons have made a mark on the world scene and Catholic popes have rejected the Freemasons since shortly after they first appeared. But there have been some startling developments. In 1885, a former Freemason named Leo Taxel reverted to the Catholic Church, and he published multiple books that contained startling revelations about how Masonry was opposed to Catholicism. Soon, what he said was confirmed by people who became even more famous than he was. So who was Leo Taxel? What did he reveal? And what did others reveal after him? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what should we say to begin today's mystery? Today's mystery involves some startling revelations about Freemasonry by the French author and former Freemason, Leo Taxel. As always on Mysterious World, we will be keeping things at an elevated level, and we strive to keep things as clean and family-friendly as possible. But the nature of Taxel's revelations includes some material that may not be appropriate for young children. We won't be mentioning the worst of what Taxel said, but we will be including enough to give listeners a general sense of what he said about his experiences with Freemasonry. So parents should be aware of this and make prudent decisions for their families. Now, before we begin, Dom, I understand you have had some experience with the Masons. Yes. uh, My father, who passed away about a year ago, was a Mason for pretty much as long as I can remember, most of his adult life, I think. And I know he had become a grandmaster of his local lodge and held other positions of importance within the group. And I do remember at one point as a young child attending a Masonic ceremony at his lodge, probably when he became a master. And over the years, I I knew that there was conflict between Freemasonry and the Catholic Church, and he and I talked about it. And without going to all the details, he always gave reasons why he saw no conflict for himself. And my dad was a devout Catholic to the end of his life, going to daily mass, praying every day and receiving the sacraments. So So that's not uncommon. There are a lot of Catholics who see no conflict between Catholicism and Freemasonry. And we'll be talking about the uh, some of the difficulties and problems that the church sees with Freemasonry in future episodes. So we will be sharing that perspective. Okay. So since our story today involves Freemasonry, we should probably give the listeners some background on them. What can you tell us about the Masons? We'll discuss Freemasonry much more in future episodes, but for now this will suffice. They are a fraternal organization composed almost exclusively of men, though there have been some Masonic lodges that have admitted women. These are known as adoption lodges, but they're not very common. Normally, Masonic lodges only admit men, and women are invited to join a different organization known as the Order of the Eastern Star, which is kind of a parallel organization for women. We'll discuss Masonry's history in a future episode, but in its modern form, it began in the early 1700s, and it didn't take long for the Catholic Church to reject it. 
1738, Pope Clement XII rejected it in a constitution called In Eminenti, and the church rejections of it were reiterated by multiple subsequent popes. In some places, Freemasonry became politicized, and this was especially true in Italy. In the early 1800s, there was a group of revolutionary secret societies there known as the Carbonari, or charcoal burners. The charcoal burners had Masonic influences, and they played a role in the violent uprisings in Italy during the period. Later, between 1848 and 1871, the different states on the Italian peninsula were united in the modern Kingdom of Italy, particularly under the influence of military leader Giuseppe Garibaldi, and Victor Emmanuel II became the first king of a united Italy. How did the church respond to these developments in Italy? Uh, they weren't a big fan of them. In the first place, there were territories known as the Papal States that had been under the civil jurisdiction of the Pope since way back in the year A.D. 756. The Papal States were removed from the Pope's control and merged into the new Kingdom of Italy. Also, in 1870, while the First Vatican Council was meeting, the Franco-Prussian War broke out, and the French troops of Emperor Napoleon III that had been protecting the papal rule in Rome withdrew from the city. So, in September of 1870, Italian nationals occupied the city. Pope Pius IX subsequently suspended the council, and thereafter he considered himself a prisoner in the Vatican, even though he wasn't legally a prisoner. In 1878, Pope Pius was succeeded by Pope Leo XIII, and six years later, in 1884, Pope Leo issued an encyclical called Humanum Genus, in which he reiterated the Church's rejection of Freemasonry. He began the encyclical like this. The race of man, after its miserable fall from God, the creator and the giver of heavenly gifts, to the envy of the devil, separated into two diverse and opposite parts, of which the one steadfastly contends for truth and virtue, the other of those things which are contrary to virtue and to truth. The one is the kingdom of God on earth, namely the true church of Jesus Christ, and those who desire from their heart to be united with it, so as to gain salvation. Much of necessity serve God and his only begotten Son with their whole mind and with an entire will. The other is the kingdom of Satan, in whose possession and control are all whosoever follow the fatal example of their leader and of our first parents, those who refuse to obey the divine and eternal law, and who have many aims of their own in contempt of God, and many aims also against God. Into the latter category, among others, Pope Leo placed both naturalists and Freemasons. He warned against the revolutionary aspirations that some Masons had been displaying, as well as the incompatibility of various aspects of Masonic beliefs and practices with the Catholic faith. How did Masons react to the encyclical? Uh, to put it lightly, Humanum Genus wasn't really their cup of tea. In his book, The Craft, How the Freemasons Made the Modern World, British historian John Dickey writes, Unsurprisingly, therefore, Masonic brethren everywhere in the world reacted with a mixture of derision and outrage to the anti-Masonic encyclical Humanum Genus of 1884. In the United States, former Confederate General and Scottish Rite Supremo Albert Pike branded it a declaration of war against the human race. For the Vatican, such reactions only confirmed that the papacy's message about Freemasonry had hit home. Now, despite beginning the encyclical in very dramatic terms, 
contrasting those who serve God with those who serve the devil, and placing Freemasonry in the latter category, Pope Leo only mentions Satan in a hand, just a handful of times in the encyclical, and he does not say that Freemasons are consciously worshiping the devil, just that they are serving erroneous ideas that ultimately come from the devil. But there were people in the Catholic world who thought Masonry had a more direct connection with the devil, and soon their suspicions would be confirmed. To give you a sense of what some people in the church were thinking about Masonry, Here's how John Dickey describes the situation. In 1850, Pius IX had given the Society of Jesus, that is, the Jesuits, a vanguard role by putting them in charge of Civilta Catholica, Catholic Civilization, a new magazine designed to spread the Holy See's message to as big a readership as possible. Civilta Catholica gave the Masonic craft obsessive coverage over the next four decades, recycling and updating the fears of Masonic conspiracy first expressed by Abbe Augustin de Barul in 1797. Cavilta Catholica launched with a serialized trilogy of anti-Masonic novels by Father Antonio Bresciani. The Jews of Verona, the Roman Republic, and Leonello all became bestsellers. They dramatized how Freemasonry and related sects were working in secret to bring about anarchy, Christianity's destruction, and Satan's triumph. The soul of all the unexpected and rapid changes in European states is the pandemonium of the secret societies. It was this pandemonium that made the pages of Bresciani's novels turn, a lurid, almost hallucinatory cavalcade of Masonic scheming, moral corruption, sexual deviancy, and political turmoil. Despite Freemasonry's notorious sniffiness about women, Bresciani's novels prominently feature malevolent sisters of the godless sect. None is more malevolent than the cross-dressing communist assassin Babette Dinterlaken, whose many crimes include worshipping Satan and smoking heavily. Divine Justice finally catches up with her in a prison hospital run by nuns, whose piety provokes such a fury of self-loathing and demonic possession in Babette that she hemorrhages and drowns in her own blood. So devilish are the Masons that, according to Bresciani, they have shaped their organization as an inverted mirror image of the Church of Christ. So, yeah, some in the Church were painting a more direct connection between Satan and the Freemason, with Father Bresciani's novels depicting members of the Masonic Lodge consciously working to bring about Satan's triumph, and including characters like cross-dressing female communist assassins who worship Satan and smoke heavily. There was thus a lot of suspicion about what Freemasons were really up to, in Catholic circles, including in the prestigious Jesuit journal, Civilta Catholica. At this point, a new figure enters our story, and that's Leo Taxel. What can you tell us about him? Leo Taxel wasn't his real name. It was a pen name that he used as a literary author. He was born in Marseille, France in 1854 with the name, with the prodigious name, Marie-Joseph-Gabriel-Antoine jogan Pages. And when he was five years old, he was placed in a Jesuit school. But he lost his faith and became an opponent of religion. He wrote some novels under his first pen name, Prosper Manin, and later he began writing nonfiction under the pen name Leo Taxel, the name under which he became famous. He was a prominent anti-clericalist, meaning a person who opposed the clergy and its influence in society. He also was one of the co-founders of the Anti-Clerical League of France, an organization devoted to attacking the clergy in print and opposing their influence on French citizens. 
John Dickey writes, In France, the most scurrilous of the anti-clerical polemicists was Leo Taxil, who from the late 1870s churned out a couple of books and half a dozen pamphlets a year, all of them with titles such as The Bible for Laughs in 1881, The Secret Loves of Pius IX, 1881, and A Female Pope, 1882. Taxil was excommunicated by Pius IX's successor, Leo XIII, in 1879. Quite an achievement for a man who was only 26. But this one-way ticket to hell only encouraged him. He reserved his purest scorn for the Jesuits, such as in the racy novels The Jesuit's Son, 1881, and The Debauched Confessor, 1883. Taxil was a passionate culture warrior, but he was also unscrupulous and money-grubbing, and had a series of run-ins with the law over plagiarism and slander. So Taxil was no fan of the church, and it's not a surprise that he was excommunicated by Pope Leo. Even though some of his most famous books were published after his excommunication, they display the clear disdain that he had for religion. For example, let's take his book, The Bible for Laughs. It's also sometimes called The Amusing Bible, and its full title in French means The Amusing Bible for Grown-Ups and Children. It contains various illustrations that are meant to be humorous. For example, one illustration shows God sitting on his throne in heaven, and he's surrounded by angels who are worshiping him, but God seems supremely bored with the worship, and he's openly yawning as if he's about to fall asleep. In another illustration titled Let There Be Light, God is depicted as preparing to light his pipe by striking a match on the seat of his pants, which is something you could do back in the day, using what were known as strike-anywhere matches that would light on almost any surface, including pants. And people really would light matches on their pants, which could be made out of a rough material like denim. Strike Anywhere matches are also what you see in old movies, where people light a match by flicking the head of the match with their thumb. These days, although Strike Anywhere matches are still available, most commercially available matches are known as safety matches because they have less of a chance of lighting accidentally because they have to be struck on a specially prepared surface, which is usually a strip on the matchbox or matchbook. In any event, with the book showing God bored with the worship he's receiving and equating Let There Be Light with God striking a match on his butt, you can see why many people didn't like the book and thought Taxel was mocking the Christian faith, which, frankly, he was, because he was a leading anti-clerical author and didn't like the church at all, having published many books, some of them quite racy, trying to smear the church and its clergy. But then, something startling happened, and news of it raced around the world. John Dickey explains, On 14 July 1885, L'Univers, the mouthpiece of the most conservative voices in the French church, published rumors that the notorious atheist militant Leo Taxel had converted to the Catholic faith. Lunivers, which had often expressed its fury at such works of Taxel's as Grotesque Cassocks, 1879, and Mistresses of the Popes, 1884, reserved judgment on his conversion for now. The reports were more appropriately greeted with astonishment than belief, it observed. Nine days later, a small man with a puffy face, a pince-nez, and unkempt hair pushed back from a balding pate called unannounced at the offices of Lunivers. It was none other than Leo Taxel, who was carrying a letter setting forth his thinking. He had indeed repented and was profoundly ashamed 
of all he had done during 17 years as a free thinker. Nervous but determined, Taxel told the editor that he had placed himself in the hands of the church. Taken aback, the editor of L'Univers gave a public assurance to Taxel that all good Christians would greet his conversion with compassion and prayer. Many did indeed express their joy at the redemption of this prodigal son. This news was so startling that it immediately raced around the world. For example, I found an article about it in the Australian paper, the Sydney Morning Herald, on September 7, 1885. The article said, In connection with the anti-clerical, and to put more broadly, the anti-religious movement in France, there is no name so notorious as that of Leo Taxil, the author of Leo Thirteenth, The Poisoner, The Amusing Bible, and several other outrageously indecent and revolting works. He was mainly instrumental in founding the Anti-Clerical League. Some days since, the startling rumor was circulated in Paris that Leo Taxel had returned to the Church of Rome. It was disbelieved, but it nevertheless turned out to be correct. Leo Taxel had spent some time in retirement at the monastery of the Grand Chartreuse, and it was there that he resolved to publicly renounce the opinions he had so long held. The fury of his old associates when this news was confirmed cannot be easily described. The leaguers held a meeting this week to pronounce the sentence of expulsion upon Leo Taxil. Much to their surprise, they found him in their midst. Although he was saluted with groans and hisses and shouts of traitor and renegade, he insisted upon speaking. At first they would not listen to him, but at length they decided to give him a hearing. He declared that he was not a traitor and that he had retired from their society from no other motives than those which conscience dictated. He added that he had been the victim of his errors. This explanation was very far from satisfying the meeting, and a resolution was passed denouncing Leo Taxel's conduct as infamous and expelling him from the League as a traitor and a renegade. In a later account, Taxel described this meeting from his perspective. When he first appeared at the paper Le Univers, or the universe, to confirm his reversion to the church, he was carrying a letter explaining his reversion, and they published it. In 1897, Taxel described what happened next. After the publication of the letter in which I disowned all my former irreligious writings, the Parisian groups of the Anti-Clerical League gathered in a general assembly to vote upon my expulsion. People were surprised to see me arrive there. The leaguers were baffled, and my presence was incomprehensible indeed. Since I had not come to defy those from whom I seceded and didn't say a word either to try and game them over. Most of these anti clerical leaguers were my friends. Some of them cried, and I was moved myself. Though I felt affected, I kept cool in the middle of a true tempest. I refer you to contemporary newspapers. In order to close the meeting, the president submitted the following resolution, which was agreed upon through an unanimous vote. Considering that the individual named Gabriel Jukand Pages, called Leo Taxel, one of the founders of the Anti-Clerical League, has disowned all the principles he stood up for, has betrayed free thinking in all his fellow anti-believers, the leaguers attending the meeting of July 27, 1885, without taking into consideration the motives which dictated such an infamous behavior to the individual named Leo Taxel, expel him from the Anti-Clerical League as a traitor and renegade. I objected then against one word, one single word of that resolution. I said the following in a most peaceful voice. My friends, I accept this resolution except one word. The president interrupted me and exclaimed, Indeed, this is cheeky. I kept on undisturbed. 
you have the right to say that I am a renegade since I just published, four days ago, a letter in which I expressly retracted and disowned all my writings against religion. But I beg you to cross out the word traitor, which in no ways applies to my case. There is not the shadow of treason in what I do today. So Taxel acknowledged that he could be considered a renegade since he had reneged, that is, renounced or abandoned his former position. But he didn't consider himself a traitor. He wanted them to understand that he just had an honest change of views. Nevertheless, they expelled him and branded him both a renegade and a traitor, and the anti-clericalists suspected him of having betrayed them for money given to him by Catholics. One of the things he had been working on before his conversion was an anti-clerical congress that was to take place in Rome. But after his conversion, he worked against this congress, as he no longer believed as he formerly did. And that led to rumors that he had been bribed. In 1897, Taxel explained, Between the day in April when I came to a priest and trusted him with my conversion, and the day of the meeting when I was expelled from the free thinkers, an anti-clerical congress took place in Rome, of which I had been one of the organizers. Nothing was easier for me than to disorganize it and make it fail completely. This congress took place in the first days of June. Later, when it was learned that since April I had seen priests again, it was said and printed that, under the pretense of this Congress, I had gone to Rome to negotiate my betrayal and was received secretly at the Vatican. It was even inserted in my biography that I was given a large sum. It was said one million. Laughter from the audience. I let it go because I didn't care much and laughed inside myself. But today I have the right to say that things were quite different. Amongst the guests of the present evening, there is an old friend who made the trip with me who accompanied me everywhere, who did not leave me for a minute. He is here and will not contradict me. Did he leave me for a minute? Did I leave him to undertake anything suspicious? No. So Taxel had worked against the anti-clericalist Congress in Rome because of his change of heart. He did not secretly go to the Vatican to arrange his betrayal by the freethinkers, and the Vatican did not bribe him to do so, as his friend who accompanied him on the trip could confirm. John Dickey explains the reaction to Taxel's conversion this way. His former comrades, materialists, atheists, republicans, and freemasons, accused him of converting because his anti-clerical books had stopped selling, or because he had been bribed. His distraught wife thought he had a breakdown. Taxel was not bothered by the skeptical voices, and at first seemed determined to withdraw from the world and break with his family. He was introduced to Archbishop Camillo Siciliano de Rend, the papal nuncio, that is, ambassador, in Paris, who advised him against such drastic steps and suggested he begin his spiritual journey with a few days' seclusion. In late August 1885, at a Jesuit retreat outside the city, he spent three agonizing days confessing his sins. And in 1897, Taxel explained what happened during this retreat. It was decided that the day after my letter of retraction, they would let me make a good little retreat at the Reverend Jesuit Father's house, and one of the most expert ones in the art of turning over souls and searching them was picked out to take care of me. The choice was not made immediately. They let me wait a good week for the great searcher who was to be my lot. He turned out to be a former military chaplain who became a Jesuit. His appreciation was to be weighty. This general confession did not last less than three days. I said everything, this, that, and other things but my partners suspected there was a further big sin, very big, very big, which was hard to confess. 
a sin more painful to come out with than the admission of thousands and thousands of impieties. At last it had to come out, this monstrous sin. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want you to keep waiting as long as he had to. My big sin was a murder, a first-class murder, one of the best downright assassinations. No, I had not slaughtered an entire family, but without being a famous murderer like Trotman or Demillard, I was good for the guillotine, no doubt, had I been found out. But my reverend father didn't let me tell it all in details. He thought me capable of the most dreadful sacrileges and found grounds to be pleasantly surprised. He did not, however, expect an assassin at his knees. When the first words of admission fell from my lips, the reverend father jumped backwards in a most significant way. Ah, now he understood my embarrassment, my difficulties, my way of discussing certain sins of less significance at such length, and how ashamed I was when I confessed my crime. Not only ashamed, but disconcerted, frightened. A widow was part of the story. The Reverend Father let me promise that, in an indirect and indeed most ingenious way, I would bestow a rent on my victim's widow. He did not want to hear any name, but what he was interested in was to know whether I had murdered with or without premeditation. After beating around the bush and falling under the weight of shame, I admitted premeditation, a true ambush. It is to my true duty to pay tribute to this Reverend Jesuit Father. I never got into troubles with the law. So the priest he made his confession to did not break the seal of confession, as the seal requires, no matter how shocking a sin is that has been confessed, it can never be revealed, even if the sin is something like murder. However, the priest could vouch for the sincerity of Taxel's conversion, and he did so. News of Taxel's conversion began to get around, and many people were interested in meeting him and welcoming him warmly. One of them was a canon, a kind of priest, from Freiburg in Switzerland. Taxel explained, A good canon of Freiburg once dropped by like a hurricane at my house and told me literally, Ah, you, Mr. Taxel, you are a saint. Because God rescued you from so deep an abyss, you must have a mountain of graces upon your head. As soon as I heard of your conversion, I took the train, and here I am. On my return, I must be able to say not only that I saw you, but that you performed a miracle in front of me. I was not expecting such a request. A miracle, I answered. I don't understand you, Mr. Cannon. Yes, a miracle, he repeated. It does not matter which, just so that I can bear witness to it. Whatever miracle you wish, what do I know? Here, for example, this chair. Turn it into a cane, an umbrella. I had gotten his point. I gently declined to perform such a wonder. And my canon returned to Freiburg, saying that if I was not performing miracles, it was out of humility. Several months later, he sent me a gigantic Gruyere cheese, on the crest of which he carved pious inscriptions, wild mystic hieroglyphs with a knife. An excellent cheese, by all means, which seemed never to come to an end, in which I ate with infinite respect. So he appreciated the priest's warm welcome and the cheese he sent him, but he did not claim to be the kind of miracle worker that the priest thought he was. With Taxel's reputation spreading, he even got to meet Pope Leo XIII. This happened in 1887, two years after his conversion, and it happened despite the fact that Pope Leo had excommunicated him back in 1879, and despite the fact that he had previously published a book called Leo XIII, The Poisoner. This happened, at least in part, because of what Taxel did to make atonement after his reversion to the faith. Since he was an author, this atonement would take a specific form. John Dickey explains, Taxel was determined to atone for his sins and clear that his atonement 
could only take literary form. Within days of his conversion, he had won the trust of numerous Parisian priests, a job in a Catholic bookshop, a deal with a Catholic publisher, a percentage of the profits from sales of his future books, and guaranteed free publicity in the Catholic press. He could now lend his pen to a sacred cause, obeying the exhortation in Humanum Genus to tear the mask from Freemasonry. Confessions of a Former Free Thinker, Taxel's Autobiography, came out in 1887. Born Gabriel Antoine Jocan Pages in 1854 near Marseille, he was educated by the Jesuits at the behest of his conservative parents. His journey into the inexplicable labyrinth of evil began at age 14 when he stumbled upon a Masonic manual. As a result, he quickly became obsessed with the craft and lost interest in religious instruction. He took on the name of Leo Taxel at age 16 when he rebelled against his father and ran away from home and developed into a political hothead who consorted with petty criminals and prostitutes. He was threatened with prison for, among other things, selling phony aphrodisiac pills. In the end, he was not involved in the sect for very long because he proved to be too independent-minded. Indeed, he left masonry completely in 1881, four years before his conversion. But that was long enough to learn the Brotherhood's deepest secrets. Masons were secret devil worshippers who were prepared to use all other religions as cover for their evil mission. The many patient and wise researchers who had looked into Freemasonry already had left important secrets still shrouded in mystery, notably the craft's grotesque and hateful rituals. Taxel's future publications were going to fill that gap. Within two years of his conversion, over many hundreds of pages and four volumes, he set out all 33 degrees of the Scottish Rite, and of various less well-known rites too. He named the officers of all the Masonic Grand Lodges and Supreme Councils across the world, calculating that there were 1,060,005 brothers in total. It was clear, Taxel explained, that the greatest architect of the universe was just a Masonic code word for the devil, and that the structure and liturgy of the craft aped the structure and liturgy of the one true church. The Freemasons had also created an offshoot, the charcoal burners, in which brothers could rent their political ardor. While they were largely dormant at the moment, the charcoal burners stood ready to rise up when the cause of Masonic mischief demanded. Truth be told, much of what was in Taxel's early works on Masonry had already been published by the Masons themselves, but the sheer quantity of information showed the earnest piety of his purpose. He issued a stern warning to any readers who found Masonic secrets dull or even amusing. Do not laugh. Do not believe that Freemasonry is joking. This is a very serious business. The most successful of Taxel's first works as a repentant Freemason was Masonic Sisters, 1886, dealing with the adoption lodges in which both men and women participated. With the earnestness of Taxel's work with multiple books he had written as a Catholic, totaling many hundreds of pages exposing Masonic rituals, it was clear that he was serious about breaking with his past, and that helped lead to his meeting with Pope Leo. Taxel explains what happened in 1887, two years after his conversion. I went to Rome, received at first by Cardinals Mariano Rampolla and Lucido Parocchi. I had the pleasure of hearing them, one as well as the other, tell me my books were perfect. Yes, indeed, my books unveiled exactly what was so well known in the Vatican, and it was truly fortunate that a convert published these famous rituals. 
Cardinal Rambola called me my dear, and how much he regretted that I had been only a mere apprentice in masonry. But since I had succeeded in getting at the rituals, nothing was more legitimate than printing them. He said he could identify therein all his previous readings from documents in the Holy See's possessions. As for Cardinal Parochi, what interested him most was the question of Masonic sisters. My precious revelations had taught him nothing new either. I had come to Rome unexpected, unaware of the fact that a request for a private audience with the sovereign pontiff must be made a long time in advance. But I had the pleasant surprise of not waiting at all, and the Holy Father received me for three quarters of an hour. The verbal report which Cardinal Rampolo must have given to the Holy Father granted me the reception I desired. When the Pope asked me, My son, what do you wish? I answered, Holy Father, to die at your feet right now. This would be my greatest happiness. Smiling, Leo XIII deigned to tell me that my life was still very useful in the fight for faith. Then he touched upon the question of Freemasonry. He owned all my new works in his personal library. He had read them from one end to the other and insisted upon the satanic guidance of the sect. Having been an apprentice only, I had great merit to have understood that the devil is there. And the sovereign pontiff stressed on the word devil with an inflection which is easy for me to render. It seems that I can still hear him repeating, the devil, the devil. The warm reception that Pope Leo gave Taxel helped him further his exposés of Freemasonry. John Dickey explains, Leo XIII's approval and even affection won more churchmen over to Taxel. The Jesuit magazine Cavilta Catholica began to cite him as an authority on things Masonic. Translations of his work into several languages made his reputation international. His next task was to clear up a number of mysterious deaths, which were in reality Masonic murders, as the title of his 1889 book proclaimed. One of the purposes of Freemasonry's ascending scale of degrees was to slowly induce absolute obedience. Once members achieved the Scottish Rite's 30th degree of Knight Kadosh, their will was so subservient that they became the craft's assassins to order. The Knight's Kadosh had carried out a number of high-profile murders, including that of William Morgan, the American Masonic trader who disappeared near Niagara Falls, New York, in 1826. And we'll be talking about William Morgan and what happened to him in a future episode on Freemasonry. It is another and true story of criminal things that Masons have done. But two years after his book Masonic Murders came out in 1891, Taxel released another book that revealed even more dramatic secrets about Freemasonry. And we'll find out what those secrets are in a second after we take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Mercedes S., Tim D., Kevin M., Bob M., and Joe B. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. 
So, Jimmy, what was that book that Taxel released in 1891 that contained even more dramatic secrets of masonry? It was called Are There Women in Freemasonry? And John Dickey explains what was significant about it. Are There Women in Freemasonry? Disclosed horrors unknown even to the highest echelons of the Catholic Church. The most secretive form of mixed-sex Freemasonry was the Palladian Order, and the Palladian Order's most secret obedience, the most hidden of its hidden lodges, practiced sexual debauchery and Satanism in absolutely undiluted forms. Known as the New Reformed Palladian Rite, it no longer disguised its Lucifer worship behind innocuous code words. Pride of place in its triangles, as the lodges were termed, went to a statue of Baphomet, the same goat-headed devil venerated by the heretical Templar Knights of the Middle Ages. And I should note that the Templars didn't really worship Baphomet, but they were popularly believed to have done so. We discussed the Knights Templar back in episode 56, so you can go back and listen to it for more information about them. Dickey continues, Women who would achieve the highest Palladian degree of Templar mistress led its rituals, which involved stabbing the consecrated host and spitting in a communion chalice. The new reformed Palladian rite was founded by Albert Pike, whom Taxel described as the antipope of the Masonic anti-church. Bravely, Taxel published a profile of one of the leading Templar mistresses, the incarnation of Satanism, as if Lucifer's blood was flowing in her veins. Sister Sophia Sappho was an astonishingly precocious devil worshipper. Before she was out of her teens, she had been awarded the five highest Palladian degrees by Albert Pike himself. She was very pretty, but her siren-like voice acquired an unnerving masculine tone when she was angry. In public, she gave every impression of living an unblemished spinster's life. Within the Adoption Lodge, she showed she was an ardent lesbian who took part in Masonic orgies coldly, waiting for the moment when she could take a sister home with her. Sophia Sappho's real passion, the thing that made her cat-like eyes light up and her voice turn husky, was sacrilege. There are two important individuals we need to discuss. The first is Confederate General Albert Pike, who is coming back into our story. He was born in your hometown of Boston Dom in 1809, but by 1833 he had settled in my home state of Arkansas and he fought for the Confederacy. He also was a passionate and enthusiastic Mason. He became the sovereign grand commander of the Scottish Rite's southern jurisdiction. He helped develop the rituals of Scottish Rite masonry, including the rituals that Leo Taxel had exposed and he published some very famous and influential books about masonry. It was General Pike who had said that Pope Leo's 1884 encyclical Humanum Genus was a declaration of war against the human race, which is a play on words, since in Latin, Humanum Genus means human race. So General Pike was bending the encyclical's title against it. But in 1891, Taxel revealed that the enthusiastic Mason Pike was also the founder of an even more secretive branch of Masonry known as the New Reformed Palladian Rite. He served as its sinister Pope in mockery of the Catholic Church, and it dropped the symbols and pretenses that other Masons used to disguise their Satanism. Members were openly Satanic within the Palladian Rite, and they did things like deliberately desecrate the Eucharist, which some opponents of the Church have in fact done in history. The Palladian Rite was also an adoption lodge, meaning that it included women as members, and 
Taxel discussed one of the most influential Templar mistresses in the order. She was known as Sister Sophia Sappho, but that was her Masonic name. In his book, Taxel revealed the first letter of her true last name, which was W. And to a doctor friend, he confided her whole name. She was actually a woman named Miss Sophie Walder. And soon, additional people began coming forward and confirming what Taxel had published in his 1891 book. John Dickey explains, Taxel clearly had inside sources. Now those sources, hardened by his courage, began to sense that they could talk directly to the public about the hell they were living through. The breakthrough came gradually, beginning in November 1892, with the publication of the serialized expose, The Devil in the Nineteenth Century. The author, who remained hidden behind the pseudonym of Dr. Bataille for his own protection, was a ship's doctor who would soon surpass Leo Taxel, so shocking and far-reaching was his discovery of a truly global satanic conspiracy. So Dr. Bataille, whoever he was, confirmed what Taxel had written about paladinism, and he went on to become even more famous than Taxel was. Dickey explains why. Dr. Bataille's story took readers back more than a decade, adding terrifying new details to the picture already painted by Taxel. In 1880, in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, he had happened across an old Italian friend, Gaetano Corbuccia. Once a well-built man, Corbuccia was now haunted and skeletal. Dr. Patel heard him confess that he had seen the devil manifest himself at a Palladian Triangle in Calcutta, India. A man of science and a devout Catholic, Dr. Patel resolved to investigate, posing as a high-ranking mason and using code words supplied by Corbuccia. In India, he discovered that such well-known oriental practices as Hinduism, snake charming, and monkey marriage, that is, marriage between monkeys, were in reality disguised forms of Satanism controlled by British Freemasons belonging to the new reformed Palladian Rite. While in Calcutta, Dr. Patel was introduced to a visiting delegate from Charleston, South Carolina, Phileas Walder, who was one of ten anti-cardinals of the anti-church, a Lutheran pastor turned Anabaptist, turned Mormon, turned Satanist. His daughter Sophia would later be identified by Leo Taxel as Sister Sophia Sappho, the ardent lesbian Templar mistress. So here, Dr. Bataille confirmed that Sophia Sappho was actually Sophie Walder, and he had met her father, an ex-minister named Phileas Walder, who was a member of the Palladian Rite. Thanks to Phileas Walder, Dr. Bataille began his ascent of the ladder of Palladian degrees, and embarked on an ever-deeper exploration of the secrets of global Masonic devil worship. In Shanghai, China, for example, Dr. Bataille stupefied himself in an opium den so as to gain admission to the demonic rites of the San Ho Hoei Triad. Its affiliates specialized in assassinating Jesuit missionaries. On Gibraltar, he was shown the deep caves where, protected by Masons within the British government, the new reformed Palladian rite had set up its factories. Dr. Bataille himself saw how workers, smoke-blackened and brutishly muscular, crafted all manner of cult objects, swords, magic lamps, pentagrams, in forges powered by the very fires of hell. Gibraltar was also home to laboratories where 21 scientists who had been turned toward the cause of evil produced poisons that killed their victims while mimicking the symptoms of heart attacks and cerebral hemorrhages. The devil has now turned himself into a bacteriologist, a dismayed Dr. Bataille concluded. But these marvels were nothing compared to what Dr. Bataille discovered when he made it to Charleston, 
where he met Albert Pike, Albert Mackey, and the young Sophia Sappho. Albert Mackey was another very influential American Freemason in the 19th century. He was from Charleston, South Carolina, and in 1858, he defined 25 principles known in Masonry as landmarks to govern the way that Freemasons and their lodges interact. He also wrote about Masonry a lot over his career. Dr. Bataille revealed that, like General Pike, he also was a member of the Palladian Rite, and Mackey showed Dr. Bataille a device known as the Arcula Mystica, which is Latin for mystical box or mystical chest. Albert Mackey showed off the Arcula Mystica, looking like a small drinks cabinet it opened at the press of a button to reveal a silver toad, a trumpet-like microphone, a bell-shaped earpiece, and seven gold statuettes, each representing one of the main centers of the Palladian cult in Charleston, Rome, Berlin, Washington, D.C., Montevideo, Naples, and Calcutta. When Albert Pike wanted to communicate with his emissaries, each of whom had an Arcula Mystica, he pressed a statuette, at which, on the other side of the world, flames would come out of the mouth of the silver toad to alert the receiver of an incoming message. In a word, wrote Dr. Battelle in amazement, the Arcula Mystica is nothing other than a diabolic telephone. The worldwide Masonic conspiracy was more tightly coordinated than anyone imagined. Dr. Battelle was shown into the new Reformed Palladian Rite's main temple, the St. Peter's of Satanism. Hidden within an unassuming building on the corner of King and Wentworth in Charleston, it comprised an underground labyrinth at the center of which was the triangular sanctum regnum, where Satan was known to materialize once a week on Fridays. No doubt on Friday, because this was the day on which our Lord was crucified. Perhaps the most dramatic revelation during Dr. Battelle's trip to Charleston came when he went for an evening stroll with Sophia Sappho. She was just talking to him about the demonic legions when she let slip that she herself was destined to be the great-grandmother of the Antichrist, who would be born on 29 September, 1962. So today, in 2023, the Antichrist would be 60 years old, about the age that many statesmen are rising to the highest offices of their careers. Dr. Bataille also was very careful about what he claimed, and he didn't necessarily believe everything that the Palladians told him. At every stage of his journey, over what would eventually fill nearly 2,000 pages, Dr. Battelle was at pains to distinguish fact from hearsay. Some things, such as the Arcula Mystica, he had seen with his own eyes. Others he had only been told about, such as the demon dwarf who appeared in a circle of white flame to carry messages for Albert Pike, or the winged piano-playing crocodile that materialized at a Palladian seance in England. Such things could have been invention. When the devil wants to, he can induce a stupefying credulity in his Palladians, Dr. Battelle explained. So, not everything the Palladians said may have been true. Some of them may have just been things they believed, like some of them believed the claim that Satan was appearing in Charleston on Fridays. And so, Dr. Battelle was careful to distinguish between what he was told and what he had actually seen. His work, The Devil in the 19th Century, was extremely popular, but soon he would be eclipsed by another figure, just as he had eclipsed Leo Taxel. This new figure was a woman named Diana Vaughn. John Dickey explains, In autumn of 1893, Dr. Battelle's memoirs were brought sensationally 
into the present as news leaked to several Catholic newspapers of a schism at the new reformed Palladian Rites secret conference in Rome. The split developed over the election of a successor to Albert Pike, who had died in 1891. One faction was led by a Templar mistress called Diana Vaughan. Keen readers of The Devil in the 19th Century knew Diana Vaughan's backstory already. Half French and half American, she was an anomaly among demonolators. At her initiation to the degree of Templar mistress, a ceremony conducted in Paris by Sophia Sappho, she flew in the face of Palladian orthodoxy by refusing to spit on the consecrated host. Diana believed that Lucifer was in fact a good god, and that Adonai, as the paladists called the Christian deity, was a force for evil who was incapable of becoming flesh in a communion wafer. Diana's case generated furious debate in the Satanist community, but she was protected from being punished by her personal demon and fiancé, Asmodeus, who had given her a magical lion's tail that flogged anyone who spoke out against her. Diana and Sophia Sappho became bitter rivals, and Diana went into hiding for her own protection. In January 1894 came new astonishment. Despite the mystery that normally shrouded Masonic business, Diana agreed with a leading Catholic journalist to give an interview in a secret location in Paris. The Diana who appeared before her interviewer was a tall, attractive woman of 29, with a serene air and a boyish haircut. So open and pure were her features that the interviewer had to remind himself and his readers that, although a virgin, she was a convinced Luciferian. In the wake of the interview, published in the Catholic periodical L'Eco de Rome, Diana received thousands of letters, many of them urging her to renounce the devil. She typed polite replies to them all on paper headed with Masonic symbols. Late in 1894, it emerged that Diana had founded a new Masonic order, the Regenerated and Free Palladium. In March the following year, she took the extraordinary step of going public again with an attractively priced monthly magazine designed to spread her beliefs. So now a new person was confirming what Taxel had reported about Palladianism, even though she was a member of the Palladian Rite itself. Dr. Bataille had written about her in The Devil in the Nineteenth Century, and she was the leader of a rival faction of Palladian Masons, opposed to those who were allied with Sophia Sappho. Now she came forward and gave an interview to the Catholic publication The Echo of Rome. It was an in-person interview, so that the reporter saw her with his own eyes, and when readers of the Echo wrote her, urging her to repent, they received polite letters back from her on Masonic stationery, though she wasn't interested in giving up her Satanism. She also began publishing a monthly magazine about her beliefs, but thousands of people were now praying for her conversion, and, as Dickey explains, after only three issues of the magazine came the news that many prominent Catholics had long been praying for. Diana had embraced the faith. In Rome, Cavilta Catholica spoke for the church hierarchy when it rejoiced at the way divine grace had worked repentance, in the heart of one of the most implacable enemies of God and his Christ. Diana, who was now sheltered in a convent known only to a tiny group, changed the title of her magazine to Memoirs of an Ex-Paladist. Henceforth, she would use it to express her newfound Christianity, confess her past sins, and expose the workings of paladism from the inside. She published a photograph of herself in the male garb of a general inspector of the Palladium and gave the intimate story of her relationship with the demon Asmodeus. 
a series of articles under the heading The Great-Grandmother of the Antichrist contained many revealing anecdotes about Sophia Sappho, including the time when she had vomited flames after drinking some holy water. It was foretold that Sophia Sappho would go to Jerusalem, where on 29 September 1896, she would be delivered of a baby girl fated to be the grandmother of the Antichrist. Proof of the prophecy was provided in the form of a letter in Latin from the demon Bitru, the baby's father. There were signs of divine blessing for what Diana Vaughn was doing. In September 1895, a young woman reported being miraculously cured of a serious affliction after making a pilgrimage to Lourdes in Diana's name. Accordingly, memoirs of an ex-paladist met with the approval of some of the most authoritative voices in Catholicism, notably Civilta Catholica, which cited her precious memoirs repeatedly and said her work was so rigorous that it would be a credit to the most erudite historian. In addition to publishing memoirs of an ex-paladist, Diana also published a collection of prayers entitled Eucharistic Novena, and she began receiving letters of approval from high churchmen. For example, on December 16, 1895, she received one from Cardinal Lucido Parocchi, who was the Cardinal Vicar of Pope Leo XIII at the Vatican. The Cardinal wrote, Miss and dear daughter in our Lord, it is with a lively but quite soft emotion that I received your good letter of 29 November, together with the copy of the Eucharistic Novena. His Holiness, Leo XIII, has entrusted me with bestowing upon you, on his behalf, a very special blessing. My sympathies have been all yours for a long time. Your conversion is one of the most magnificent triumphs of grace that I am aware of. Right now, I am reading your memoirs, which are just fascinating. Be assured that I have not forgotten you in the meantime, especially in my prayers to the Holy Sacrifice. As for you, do not cease to thank our Savior Jesus Christ for the great mercy which he bestowed upon you and the magnificent token of love which he gave you. Do accept my blessing and believe me, all yours in the heart of Christ, L.P. Cardinal Vicar. So, among other things, Cardinal Parocchi indicated that Leo XIII had entrusted him with the task of sending Diana Vaughn a special blessing. Uh, the Cardinal was reading her memoirs, which he found fascinating, and he accepted the sincerity of her conversion, telling her to continually thank Jesus for the great mercy he had on her. But not everyone was convinced by Diana's books and writings. John Dickey explains, In the spring of 1896, Diana's journal announced the exciting news that a September date had been fixed for the church-sponsored International Anti-Masonic Congress. It boded very well that this new crusade against masonry would begin exactly 800 years after the first crusade set out for the Holy Land. Just at that moment, when Luciferian Freemasonry was on the defensive and the Anti-Masonic Congress was approaching, doubts began to circulate about Diana Vaughan's confessions. Some Catholic newspapers, particularly in Germany, began to make wild insinuations that she did not exist, or even that the wave of revelations about Freemasonry that followed in the wake of Leo Taxel's conversion was all a gigantic plan to bury the church under an avalanche of ridicule. Increasingly, the evidence cited in memoirs of an ex-paladist was challenged. For example, it was pointed out that the letter from the demon Bitru that announced the birth of the Antichrist's grandmother contained lots of grammatical errors, as if Lucifer's angels would bother to write in flawless church Latin. So Diana was being challenged, and this was nothing new. After her works started being published, many Freemasons were outraged and said that the Palladian Rite 
didn't exist. In fact, some said the whole thing was a Jesuit hoax to make Freemasonry look bad. But if the Palladian Rite really was an especially secretive group within Freemasonry, Freemasonry, a lot of Masons may not have known about it, and Masons were known to lie anyway, so that didn't prove that it wasn't real. Now, new attacks were being made on Diana, this time from within the church. But she continued to receive letters of support from high churchmen. In May 1896, she received a letter from the Secretary General of an organization that the Pope himself had formed, the Council of the Anti-Masonic Union. It said, Rome, May 27, 1896. Miss, Monsignor Vincenzo Sardi, who is one of the private secretaries of the Holy Father, has entrusted me with writing to you by the order of His Holiness himself. I should also tell you that His Holiness read with great pleasure your Eucharistic Novena. Commander Aliata had an interview with the Cardinal Vicar, that is Cardinal Parocchi, concerning the veracity of your conversion. His eminence is convinced, but he declared to our president that he cannot bear witness of it publicly. I cannot betray the secrets of the Holy Office, is what his eminence answered to Commander Aliata. I am all yours, very devoted in our Lord, Rodolfo Verzicchi, Secretary General. So Mr. Verzicchi was told to write Diana Vaughn by one of the Pope's private secretaries, Monsignor Vincenzo Sardi, who had been instructed to give this order by Pope Leo himself. Mr. Vrzici also reveals that the head of the Council of the Anti-Masonic Union, Commander Aliata, had made inquiries about the sincerity of Vaughn's conversion. Aliata spoke with Cardinal Parocchi, who said that he couldn't reveal everything known to the Holy Office, which today is the dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, but he was personally convinced of her sincerity. A few weeks later, in June of 1896, Diana Vaughn received another letter. This one was from the Pope's private secretary, Monsignor Vincenzo Sardi. It makes reference to a book of Diana's in which she describes how the recent Italian Prime Minister, Francesco Crispi, had made a pact with a demon called Harborem. That Crispi was present at a Paladist meeting in 1885, at which a demon named Beatru indicated that Sophie Walder would give birth to the grandmother of the Antichrist and that this would happen on September 19, 1896. Having received the book, the Pope's personal secretary, Monsignor Sardi, wrote back, Rome, July 11, 1896. Miss, I hasten to express the thanks which are due to you for sending your last book on former Italian Prime Minister Francesco Crispi. Keep on, miss. Keep on writing and unmasking the iniquitous sect which is the reason why Providence has permitted that you belong to it for such a long time. I recommend myself with all my heart to your prayers, and with a perfect esteem, I declare myself your very devoted Monsignor Vincenzo Sardi. So Monsignor Sardi was very convinced of what Diana had been saying in her Masonic exposés of paladism. He said that God had allowed her to belong to it for so long so that she could effectively write and unmask it now. Also, Civilta Catholica was supportive. In their September 1896 issue, they wrote, We want at least once to give ourselves the pleasure of blessing publicly the names of the valorous champions who entered first the glorious arena, among them the noble Miss Diana Vaughn. Miss Diana Vaughn, called from the depths of darkness to the light of God, prepared by divine providence, armed with science and personal experience, 
turns toward the church to serve it, and appears inexhaustible in her valuable publications, which are unparalleled for accuracy and usefulness. So Civilta Catholica recognized Vaughn as having a genuine conversion and was now serving the church with her writings, which, Civilta Catholica said, are unparalleled for accuracy and usefulness. And in October 1896, after the attacks on Diana had appeared in the press, the secretary of Cardinal Parochi wrote her, Keep on, miss, through your pen and your piety, despite the efforts of hell, furnishing weapons to overwhelm the enemy of mankind. All the saints' deeds have been fought against. No wonder, then, that yours are not spared. Please accept, miss, the expression of my liveliest feelings of admiration and respect. A. Villard, prelate of the residence of His Holiness, secretary to His Eminence Cardinal Parochi. So Villard said that Diana's work was being opposed just as the work of the saints had been opposed, and he regarded her writings as useful weapons to oppose the devil. And Villard was far from alone, for many highly placed churchmen were of the same opinion as we've just heard. However, despite such reassurances, the controversy did not die out. Dickey explains, In late September 1896, about a thousand people, among them 36 bishops and the representatives of about 50 more, gathered in Trent for the first International Anti-Masonic Congress. The name on everyone's lips was that of Miss Diana Vaughan. A special session of the Congress was scheduled to discuss the issues arising from her memoirs. Some doubters asked for proof. Who were her confessors? Who were the godparents at her baptism? Leo Taxel, who was one of the few people who had been trusted to know Diana Vaughan's whereabouts, came to the speaker's platform to point out the obvious. Publishing such information would endanger Diana Vaughan's life. Since opinions at the Congress remained divided, a special commission was entrusted with looking further into the issue. But when the commission's report came out some three months later, it said blandly that there was not enough evidence to decide how genuine the memoirs of an ex-paladist were. There were rumors that the Vatican hierarchy now had serious concerns about Diana and had put pressure on the commissioners to muffle their conclusions out of fears that exposing her as a fraud would create huge embarrassment. The controversy only grew louder. The press now alleged that Diana was merely a puppet in the hands of Leo Taxel. More worryingly, Dr. Patel came out from behind a pseudonym. His real name was Dr. Charles Hacks, and he said that he had been paid to collaborate on The Devil in the 19th Century. His paymaster and the real author was Leo Taxel. I was mocking Catholics, the doctor said. Everything I wrote was a fraud. Even Diana was feeling the pressure. She only had one option left to prevent the triumph of the Masonic campaign to undermine her. Whatever the risk, she owed it to God, the Church, and her many loyal supporters to appear in public for the first time. Early in April 1897 came the announcement that Diana had picked the imminent Easter Monday to hold a press conference. The venue would be the meeting room of the prestigious Geographical Society on the Boulevard Saint-Germain. Leo Taxel would begin proceedings with a lecture entitled Twelve Years Under the Banner of the Church. Diana would then talk on the theme of Paladism Struck Down. Fifty-five images would be projected by means of the latest oxyhydric lamp, providing photographic and documentary proof of her claims. This was to be the first event in a tour that would take in many cities in Europe and America. To ensure a good audience, there would be a free raffle. The winner would walk away with a top-of-the-range typewriter, generously provided by Miss Diana Vaughn herself. 
So Diana Vaughn was to appear on April 19th and prove her existence to the world, even though she'd already given an in-person interview to the Echo. She'd written letters to numerous people who had corresponded with her, and she'd published a photograph of herself. But if all that wasn't enough, she'd risk her personal safety by appearing in front of a crowd, which could contain Masonic assassins ready to kill her, either openly or by stealth. On April 25th, the Paris newspaper Le Frondeur published an account of what happened, and it included the planned speech by Leo Taxel, which is what we've been quoting from all through this episode. It's Taxel's account of what happened leading up to and after his conversion to the faith. Le Frondeur reports on how the evening of April 19th began. With more or less impartiality, all newspapers reported the memorable evening at the Geographic Society on April 19. We thought the best thing to do was reproduce the full text of Mr. Leo Taxel's conference. Let us say first that the very numerous audience consisted mainly of press representatives from various countries and of all opinions. Many priests, monks, very many ladies, some freethinkers, some Freemasons. The nunciature had sent two delegates. The archdiocese was also represented. Entrance was free, but one could get in only by showing nominal invitation cards, which had been sent one month in advance. First thing in the evening, a splendid typewriter offered by Miss Diana Vaughn was raffled. Its lucky winner was Mr. Ali Kental, editor of the Ikdam newspaper at Constantinople in the Ottoman Empire. Then Mr. Leo Taxil addressed the audience. My reverend fathers, ladies, gentlemen. First of all, it is appropriate to convey some thanks to those of my colleagues of the Catholic press who, suddenly undertaking a campaign of vociferous attacks six or seven months ago, produced a marvelous result. We already witnessed it tonight and tomorrow will witness it even better. I mean the quite exceptional explosion of the manifestation of truth and a question whose solution might possibly have passed completely unnoticed without them. To these dear colleagues accordingly, my first congratulations. And they will understand in a moment how much these thanks are sincere and justified. This evening I shall strive to forget all the unjust and offensive things which have been published against me during the polemic I just mentioned. Or, at any rate, if I come to elucidate specific facts in a way unexpected for many. I shall merely tell the truth, setting aside the very shadow of the lightest resentment for my thoughts. After the explanations whose time has come at last, maybe these Catholic colleagues will not disarm before my peaceful philosophy. However, should my good dispositions annoy them instead of calming them down, I assure them that nothing will induce me to set aside the equanimity I acquired over the last 12 years, and which makes me infinitely happy. So Taxel, who had shown up wearing a fez, starts by praising his colleagues in Catholic journalism, despite the fact that they've been criticizing him unjustly. Setting aside all hostility, he praises them for their interest in the truth, and says, that their efforts will now better let the truth be known. He will simply state the facts, and if that doesn't calm down his colleagues in Catholic journalism, he bears them no ill will. And he has had peace of mind following his conversion 12 years ago. We won't quote all of his lengthy speech, but here is where he starts to get in to the meat of the matter. Now I address myself to the Catholics. Do not get angry, my reverend fathers, but do laugh heartily when you are told now that what did happen is the very opposite of what you expected. There wasn't the shadow of a dedicated Catholic exploring the high masonry of paladism under a false nose. But on the contrary, there has been a freethinker 
who for his own edification, not because of any hostility, came into your camp and strolled, not during eleven years, but during twelve, and it is your servant. Various reactions from the audience, including murmuring and laughter. There wasn't the least Masonic plot in this story, which I shall prove to you shortly. I feel bound to make such a statement, and I also admit that I make it easily. During these twelve years spent under the banner of the church, and although I registered as a prankster, I realized how wrong it is to impute the malice of some people to doctrines. It results from mankind itself. A bad man remains bad, just like a good man acts with goodness, whether he keeps his faith or loses it. Dishonest people as well as honest ones are found everywhere. Signs of approval from the audience. I came at first as a curious person, a bit at random, but of course intending to withdraw once the experience had come to its end. Then the sweet pleasure of pranking took over, overwhelming everything. I lingered in the Catholic camp, gradually developing my plan of an altogether amusing and instructive mystification, and giving it ever broader proportions as things went along. So that's the twist for this episode. It had all been a prank. Taxel said he didn't do it out of malice, but just for fun. But still, it was just a prank. Leo Taxel had never been a sincere Catholic. He revealed that his conversion had been false, and he'd made up things in his three-day confession of sins to the Jesuits, including the idea that he'd committed premeditated murder. That was false. It was just something he made up to satisfy his Jesuit confessor, who suspected that there was some great sin he was holding back. At first, Taxel didn't tell anybody about the hoax, not even his friends and not even his wife. He let them all believe that his conversion was sincere, lest any of them give him away. He really was expelled from the French anti-clerical league who thought he had betrayed them. And I have to say that not even telling your wife and letting her think you've had a breakdown when really you've been conducting an elaborate prank, especially one that goes on for 12 years, really reveals a lack of human consideration and constitutes a breach of husbandly duties towards one's wife. Taxel went on to describe the history of the prank and how it involved over time. He discussed how he enlisted Confederates. One was Dr. Charles Hacks, the real man, behind the Dr. Bataille persona. Dr. Hacks really was a ship's doctor who had traveled the world, and Taxel brought him into the plan to add color and accurate details about other parts of the world. In the narratives that Taxel himself would write for The Devil in the 19th Century, the other Confederate was the woman behind the Diana Vaughn persona. Taxel explained, A little while before meeting again with my childhood friend, the doctor, the necessities of my profession let me see, meet a typist, who was a European representative of one of the large typewriter manufacturers in the United States. At that time, I gave her lots of manuscripts to type. I met with a woman who was intelligent, active, sometimes traveling for business. Further gifted with a playful humor and an elegant simplicity, as in most of our Protestant families, one knows that Lutheran and Calvinist women, although prescribing luxury in the way they dress, nevertheless make concessions to fashion. Her family was French. Father and mother French, but deceased. The American origin went back to her great-grandfather only. She is, as I said, rather a freethinker than a Protestant. Consequently, she was amazed to find out that in this century of progress, there are still people who believe seriously in all the nonsense of the Middle Ages. 
Finally, I convinced Miss Vaughn to become my accomplice for the final success of my hopes. I drew a fixed agreement with her. 150 francs per month, or something like $800 today after all the inflation the governments have caused, for typing manuscripts as well as for letters which should be copied by hand. It goes without saying that should trips be necessary, all her expenses would be defrayed, but she never accepted any money as a gift. In fact, she enjoyed the prank quite a lot and took a liking to it. Corresponding with bishops, cardinals, receiving letters from the private secretary of the sovereign pontiff, telling them fairy tales, informing the Vatican about the dark plots of Luciferians, all this set her in an inexpressible gaiety. She thanked me for associating her with this huge prank. Taxel discussed how many bishops and theologians had believed even the most outlandish parts of their story, like when they said that a winged piano-playing crocodile had materialized at a Palladian seance in England. Our marvelous revelations brought them the most encouraging Episcopal congratulations, not counting those of the grave theologians who didn't bat an eyelid when our crocodile played the piano and Miss Vaughn traveled to various planets. I should point out that spirits were often held to materialize in bodily form at seances in this period, and in cases of what is known as physical mediumship, spirits were often held to play musical instruments at seances. What was distinct in this case was merging a materialization with playing an instrument and making the spirit take the form of a winged crocodile. Also, as we heard back in episode 229 and again in episode 230, 19th century figures like Seventh-day Adventist prophetess Ellen Gould White had claimed to be taken to other planets in vision, so similar claims were being made in other quarters. But some people did see through the hoax and tried to report it. One of them was the American bishop Henry Northrup. He was the bishop of Charleston, South Carolina, where the Palladian masonry was allegedly based. Taxel explains, Monsignor Northrup, Catholic bishop of Charleston, went to Rome expressly to assure the sovereign pontiff of the highest fantasy of these writings. This journey would have remained unknown if Monsignor Northrup, on his way to Rome, had not let himself be interviewed, which is how what he came to tell the Pope became public. He had come to say, It is false, absolutely false, that the Freemasons of Charleston are the chiefs of a supreme Luciferian rite. I am especially well acquainted with the most important ones. They are Protestants inspired by the best intentions. Not one of them considers practicing occultism. I visited their temple. None of the rooms indicated by Dr. Patel or Miss Vaughn are to be found there. The map of the building is a hoax. On his return from Rome, Monsignor Northrop did not protest anymore and has kept silent ever since. Miss Diana Vaughn, on the contrary, replied to Monsignor Northrop's interview. She said the Bishop of Charleston was himself a Freemason, and she received the Pope's blessing. So Bishop Northrop alerted Pope Leo to the falsity of the writings about the Palladian Rite, indicating that he knew the most important Freemasons in Charleston, and they were sincere Protestants, not Satanists. He further had seen the interior of their Masonic temple and the rooms described in Taxel-inspired writings simply did not exist, such as the one containing the Arcula Mystica supervillain telephone, with the silver toad statuette that would spout flames to signal an incoming call. None of that was real. And after Bishop Northrop's warning, Diana Vaughn simply accused him of being a Freemason, and she continued to receive approval from high churchmen. 
while Bishop Northrop thereafter kept his mouth shut in public, perhaps to avoid embarrassing Pope Leo and others at the Vatican, and perhaps to avoid feeding the idea that he was himself a Freemason and getting into deeper trouble. Taxel concluded, Ladies, gentlemen, you were told that Pelotism would be knocked down today. Better still, it is annihilated. It is no more. In my general confession to the Jesuit father of Clamart, I had accused myself of an imaginary murder. Well, I will admit to a further crime. I committed infanticide. Pelotism is now dead for good. Its father just murdered it. The reaction of the crowd to this new confession was mixed. John Dickey reports. The audience was initially nonplussed as Taxel began to speak. Then, as the truth sank in, a murmuring anger spread through the hall. The clack of friends Taxel had brought with him laughed demonstratively. The first shout to be heard above them was, You're just a squalid rascal. From that point, cries of rogue and scoundrel accompanied the speaker's every word, forcing him occasionally to stop until the din subsided. The churchmen present looked at one another, uncertain of what to do. Some wept or steered in disbelief. Some began to walk out. Others called them back to continue protesting. Taxel also handled the moment of exposure very badly. The audience were treated to the lengthy spectacle of a man beaming smugly at his own tasteless joke. He considered this enjoyable and instructive mystification to be the most fantastic hoax of modern times. He appealed to the clergyman present not to get angry, but to laugh sunnily along with him. Nausea, according to one journalist present, was the overwhelming reaction in the hall. When Taxel finished speaking, there was uproar. A good portion of the audience, by no means all of them from the Catholic side, surged toward the speaker. Insults flew along with gobs of spit. Taxel was only saved from the wrath of the crowd by his friends and by the policeman who escorted him to a restaurant nearby. So Taxel had admitted that the whole story of satanic masonry had been a hoax that he had been working for 12 years. After this revelation, people who had believed the story largely went quiet. Dickey explains, The church, for its part, opted for the pretense of dignified silence, wherever it could. Cavilta Catholica had the impressive brass neck to claim that it never really believed in Leo Taxel and Diana Vaughn. It reassured its readers of the Pope's great serenity when he heard the news, and quoted him as saying that Taxel's fraud was just one more example of how impudent Freemasons could be. Leo Taxel lived out a comfortable early retirement on the substantial nest egg that Paladism had earned him. When the opportunity arose to round out his income, he would republish one of or other of the books from his anti-clerical days, like The Secret Loves of Pius IX from 1900 and The Bible for Laughs from 1901. He died in provincial obscurity in March 1907. And so Leo Taxel passed on to his reward. So what can we say about Leo Taxel and his colossal hoax from the faith and reason perspectives? Well, lessons should we learn from it? The chief lesson is don't believe everything you hear. So don't assume the worst about those you disagree with or disapprove of. And that particularly applies to groups like Masons. As we'll see in future episodes, Masons have done bad things. But that doesn't mean we should believe every rumor we hear about them. And there are lots of rumors. You hear all kinds of stories about Masons, including in the Catholic world, that are just 
put out there without any solid evidence backing them up. So I wanted to start our discussion of masonry on the show with a cautionary tale. As today's episode illustrates, some of the things you hear about masonry are totally false. Leo Taxel staged an elaborate 12-year hoax that took in many members of the Catholic hierarchy, including priests, bishops, cardinals, Vatican officials, and apparently Pope Leo XIII himself, who reportedly told Taxel that he had read all of his books and pamphlets. Yet, this could have been avoided if people had not just believed the story because it went along with their preferred narrative. They should have insisted on actual evidence and not just believed wild stories that they found exciting. They would have discovered the hoax if they had done serious fact-checking on the claims, or if they had just applied common sense to the more outlandish claims, like the supervillain telephone or the piano-playing crocodile materialization, or if they had just listened to people who had first-hand knowledge of the situation that were trying to warn them, like Bishop Henry Northrup of Charleston. But instead, they gave in to confirmation bias and didn't seriously question the story they were being fed. Taxel's narratives confirmed their beliefs about Masons and how sinister they were, so they just accepted the claims without proof and without cross-examining them. Cross-examining things and using critical thinking is what we do here on Mysterious World, so in future episodes on Masonry, we won't simply be accepting claims without evidence. But unfortunately, not everybody takes this attitude, and some contemporary Catholic figures who shall remain nameless for the present have spun wild theories about the Church being infiltrated by Masons. Some have even written books with the word infiltration in their title and based them on rumors rather than verified facts. They have slandered and libeled numerous people including bishops and cardinals, by accusing them of being Masons without proof, just like Diana Vaughn falsely accused Bishop Northrop of being a Mason. Unfortunately, too many people have not learned the needed lessons, and Leo, the Leo Taxel hoax continues to have an effect today. Encyclopedia.com notes, The hoax was forgotten by all but a few students of occult history. But Taxel's books reemerged in the 1980s as source material from which contemporary anti-Mormon and anti-Satanist conspiracy books have been written. So people in more recent times have been using Taxel's writings, apparently without realizing that they were a hoax. And related wild claims about masonry continue to be made by others. For example, one of Jack T. Chick's Chick Tracks was The Curse of Baphomet, and today Chick Publications still issues a tract called That's Baphomet. In works like this, Chick continues to peddle the idea that Masons worship Baphomet and that they are closet Satanists. So there is a lot of bad information about Masons out there, and in the future, we'll be using critical thinking to sort out the good from the bad to give you an accurate picture of what Freemasonry is, including aspects of Masonry that aren't objectionable at all, and aspects where Masons have done bad things, so that we have a fair, balanced, and realistic understanding of Freemasonry. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this? Leo Taxel was a hoaxer. He did not genuinely convert to the Catholic faith. Instead, he played a 12-year-long prank 
making increasingly wild claims about Freemasons, including that one Mason, one rite of Masonry was overtly satanic and even had supernatural manifestations of the devil happening on Fridays. The claims made by Taxel himself, doc, by Dr. Bataille, and Diana Vaughn were false. But because they fit the narrative preferred by many in the Catholic world, confirmation bias led priests, bishops, cardinals, and perhaps even Pope Leo XIII to believe them. Believers in Taxel's tales did not use critical thinking, demand solid evidence, or cross-examine the claims. Fortunately, there were figures like Bishop Henry Northrop of Charleston who tried to blow the whistle but they were ignored and even falsely accused of being Masons themselves. Fortunately, Taxel eventually revealed his hoax, but it continues to have effects today, and some prominent Catholic figures today continue to spin wild and inaccurate tales about Masons infiltrating the Church based on rumor, without solid proof. They ought to take the example of Leo Taxel seriously and heed the lessons it teaches us. Hoaxes about Masons are real, so don't credulously absorb rumors and insist on proof. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to John Dickey's book, The Craft, How the Freemasons Made the Modern World, Pope Leo XIII's 1884 Encyclical Humanum Genus, Leo Taxel's Confession of the Hoax, as well as information on Leo Taxel from uh, Wikipedia and Encyclopedia.com, also information on the Leo Taxel hoax, and a post that I wrote about meeting Jack Chick himself. Interesting. Be sure to check that out, folks. It's an interesting story. So that's it from us this time. What are your theories about Leo Taxel and his amazing revelations about Freemasonry? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. They're available to do video, animation, and design work. So if you have a need for any of those things, uh, visit their website, check them out. You can also see examples of their video work and animation work by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where we post the Mysterious World videos that Oasis Studio 7 does. I also post other videos. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you would hit the like button, because if you like something and you tell YouTube that, then YouTube will think, oh, other people may like this too, and it'll show it to more, show the video to more people and help us grow the audience. Also, I'm trying to grow my channel, and so we recently passed 40,000 subscribers. Our next goal is 50. So uh, I'd appreciate it if you would hit the subscribe button and the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video out, whether it's a Mysterious World videos or one of the apologetic videos I put up. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be hunting for cryptids or hidden creatures. Specifically, we're going to be hunting some frightening creatures that are reported to be flying snakes. 
Just imagine a snake coming at you through the air. There are multiple reports of these spanning the centuries, and there's much more to this story than you might suspect, so you won't want to miss our latest cryptid hunt. Excellent. Not excellent about flying snakes, but excellent, interesting story. So, folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt like I'm wearing in today's uh, video, if you're watching the video, or mug or more in our Mysterious uh, Merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jeremy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 272. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Let's Science. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash science.